Welcome, fellas. Good morning. So glad you're here. Glad we're safe and dry. Miss those tornadoes. I invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles to First um, Chronicles chapter 17. I know First Chronicles is one of those books of the Bible that many of us might not be as familiar with as others. So as you're turning there, First Chronicles 17, just a just a brief and feeble overshot of First Chronicles. Um, this was written, compiled near the tail end of Old Testament history. Uh, we're not sure who wrote it. It could have been Ezra. This was written around the same time Ezra and Nehemiah was written, so it could have been Ezra. We're not very sure. It was probably a Levite or at least someone who had uh, access to historical temple records. And we also know that it was written after the formal exile was over. Now, if you remember your Old Testament history, uh, Babylon conquered Judah in 586. And in doing so, they you know, deported all of God's people. They became exiles and were scattered around the Babylonian Empire. The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. The, the, the wall around the city was destroyed. And uh, effectively, as they knew it, the observable and political Davidic monarchy was over, which was disastrous for them. Now, a couple years after that, a couple decades, another big power comes, Persia, and they defeat Babylon. And they inherit all of Babylon's stuff, including the exiles. Now, the Persian king was a little bit more gracious than the Babylonian king, and he allowed God's people to return uh, to their homeland, which they did. And he also gave them the manpower and the resources to start rebuilding things. So they started rebuilding the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah's leadership and the, the walls around the city. And even though it was, it was a better time than they previously had as Babylonian exiles, um, all was not well in the promised land. God's glory had not returned to the temple. Their glory as the people of God has not returned. The promised Davidic king had not ascended the throne and they were still under the oppressive rule of a foreign pagan nation. And therefore, the questions of their place as God's people and God's purposes, what is their place in what God is doing, and all of those amazing promises that God gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, those were pressing. When's God going to do this stuff? And it was pressing in their hearts. Enter the chronicler, the author, whoever he was, who sets out to encourage God's people. And he does it by retelling the story of Israel from start to finish through the lenses of the Davidic covenant. And essentially what he's trying to do is he's trying to cultivate this God awareness, this theological awareness that no matter how bad life is, by remembering the past blessings of God, they're able to trust God's promises for the future. And one way in which he does this, believe it or not, is by incorporating these great prayers of faith made by God's people in the past, most notably the kings, making note of why they're praying and how they're praying and what they're praying and how God answers. And one such prayer is the one they'll be looking at this morning. It's a prayer made by King David right after he receives these amazing promises from the Lord in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So let's look at this. Um, because not only does it show us how amazing God is, but it shows us how we too ought to respond to the amazing promises and grace of God. Um, we're going to focus on verses 16 through 27, but I want to start at verse 1 because this is what prompts David to pray. All right, so chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. 
And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is, is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I've gone from tent to tent, from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. He's speaking directly to David. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all of your enemies before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I'll raise up an offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love for him as I took it from him who is before you, meaning Saul. But I will confirm him in my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now here's our passage. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you've brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have spoken, also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant. For your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart, you've done all these greatness in making known all these great things. There's none like you, O Lord, and there's no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making for yourself a name for great and awesome things and driving out nations before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. And you made your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever and do as you have spoken. And your name will be established and magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray before you. And now, O Lord, you are God. You have promised this good thing to your servant. Now you've been pleased to bless this house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For it is you, O Lord, who have blessed and is blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we are so grateful that you have not only called us uh, into your eternal family and made us brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are so grateful that in your uh, mercy and grace that you allow us to gather here every Thursday morning to study your word, to dwell in your word, to be amazed by your grace. And Lord, we pray that you'd send your spirit upon us, that that would happen again uh, this morning. 
we pray in your blessed son's name. Amen. In 1747, the foul-mouthed, blaspheming, slave-trading, immoral John Newton boarded a ship called uh, the Greyhound. He was a reluctant passenger. He did not want to go onto that ship. His father actually met the ship captain years before and said, hey, if you're ever down by the west coast of Africa and you see my son John Newton, get him on your ship and bring him back home. Took some convincing, but John actually got on that ship and they slowly made their way from that west coast of Africa back to England. They took some pit stops first, took them a long while. And everything was going fine until on March 10th, 1748, terror struck. In the middle of the night, this ferocious storm just beat up against the ship. I read somewhere, I don't know how they know this, but I read like 30-foot waves, 80-mile-per-hour winds. In fact, those, those waves were so strong, you know, John was sleeping in the bow of the ship, was knocked out of his cot because of the force of one particular wave that, that hit the boat. Situation was perilous. Uh, the ship was taking on lots of water. The masts were breaking. People were being thrown overboard and dying. And John knew that it all seemed lost. And so for the first time since he was a boy, he did something. He prayed. And he said, Lord, have mercy on us. What's interesting, though, he stopped right after he said that. He actually put his hands to his mouth. And with great shame, he, said, he thought to himself, what right do I have to pray to God? I've lived a terrible life. I've been a blasphemer. What right do I have to come before God and talk to God? So he stopped praying. And he knew with the death of threat hanging, or the threat of death rather, hanging over him, that if he died that night, he was doomed. And so for the next several hours, he tried not to die. He joined the, his shipmates and they were pumping water as fast as they could to no avail. Finally, he actually tied himself to the helm of the ship tied himself to the helm of the ship to make sure the ship stayed on course. And while being tied to the helm, he actually had time to think. And he started thinking about his life. He started thinking about God. He started thinking about God's word and the truth of Christianity, the faith that his mother had taught him as a little boy. And as he was there tied to that helm, a great awakening happened in his soul. From that time forward, he never failed to remember that experience. He talked about it a lot. He wrote about it a lot. He wrote about it in his journal. One of the things that he wrote in his journals was that on that night, the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. And he was not talking about the Atlantic. He was talking about his sin-sick soul. But that night, God had delivered him. And therefore, for the rest of his life, he marveled at the amazing grace of God. Now, as you know, the song we just sang was based off that experience, but not just that experience. It was also based off 1 Chronicles chapter 17. You can look at the bottom of your little hymn sheet. If, you, if you're ever looking at our hymn book in, the, in uh, Sunday Morning Church, you can always look at the scriptural reference that that hymn was, was based off of. John Newton based this song, this hymn, which we know and love, off his salvation experience and 1 Chronicles chapter 17. Why? Because that's exactly what David was doing in this passage. He was marveling, marveling at God's grace. Not years later, but immediately after God had showered grace upon grace and gave him these amazing promises. And he did that because he knew down deep in his soul that at the revelation of God's grace, we must praise him. Grace cultivated a heart of worship in David's soul, and it ought to cultivate one in ours as well. 
there's three things I want us to pay attention to in David's response to grace. The first one is this. We see David pondering and praising God in verses 16 through 20. Now remember the context. The context here is not that of the chronicler. All right, this is not post-exile. The context of this prayer was when David first made it back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in that context, Israel, they were doing great. I mean, they had just entered this great season of rest. David had ascended the throne. I mean, he, he is, he's king over a united people. He's defeated his enemies, right? And the ark has made its way to Jerusalem. And everybody's praising God. David's praising God. And in response to all these amazing blessings in verses 1 through 2, he says, you know what? I want to build God a temple. I mean, it's only fair. I mean, God has blessed our socks off. Let's do something for him. Let's build this temple. Let's give him a permanent dwelling in Israel. And, uh, and furthermore, in addition to him just simply wanting to bless God since he's been blessed, this was something that was common for kings back then, particularly successful kings. Successful kings, they would build temples for whoever their God was, not only to honor their gods, but also to, it was kind of like a stamp of success. I'm a great king, and I'm going to build this temple to prove it, right? And so that's what David wanted to do, and, and he told Nathan about it. Nathan said, you know what, I think you should do it. Sounds good to me. I mean, God is clearly with you. He's clearly with God's people. Let's build the temple. Until you get to verse 3 through 15, when God intervenes and says to Nathan, tell this to David, thanks but no thanks. David, I appreciate it, but I don't need you to make my name great. I'm going to take care of that. Don't you worry, but here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make your name great. Then after all these blessings that God's people, particularly David, have experienced, God just opens up the storehouses and gives them these amazing promises. Amazing promises that essentially become the Davidic covenant as we know it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. These amazing promises, this, this covenant, this unconditional covenant, where the, the assurity of which rests not on the faithfulness of David, but on the faithfulness of God. Where he promises David and and the people of Israel, that through David's line, the Messiah will come and he will establish an everlasting kingdom. Now that's where our passage picks up. <laughs> David says, God, I'm going to do something great for you. God says, stop it, David. I'm going to do something great for you. In addition to all the things I've done. Then picking up in verse 16, the first thing that we see David do is that he ponders past grace. Notice verse 16. I mean, David is just... I mean, he is completely astonished by what he just heard. What do we notice that he does? What does he do? Immediately, he goes into God's presence where the tent, uh, most likely the tent where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. He goes into God's presence after he heard these, these amazing promises, and he sits down. Now, I think that's extremely significant. Because I could be wrong in this, but I think this is the only place in the Bible where someone sits down to pray. Most times people are standing up or they have their faces in the mud, but this is, this is the only place I believe that we see where someone sits down to pray. It's almost as if the weight and the wonder of God's grace just drove him straight to his butt. Like he got weak in the knees. He's so overwhelmed by grace upon grace upon grace that he just falls to his keister. And equally as insignificant is what he actually says once he's on his rear end. What does he say? He says, who am I, O Lord God? That is the covenant name, uh, Yahweh, then Elohim, creator of the universe who have made yourself my covenant God. Who am I, covenant God in my house, that you have brought me thus far? Brought me thus far. Those are the words of pondering past grace. So here's David. 
He just gets weak in the knees from what he just heard God say. He falls down and he starts remembering all the amazing things in which God has done in his life up to this point. He was staring at the back end of sheep as a young boy, but now here he is shepherding all of God's people. And to get there, just like the song says, he went through many snares, toils, and dangers. He, 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 he had near-death experiences all over the place. King Saul, that mighty ruler, tried to kill him as a young boy and as a, as a young adult. And of course, there was failures in his own leadership and sin in his own heart. But God brought him through it all. That's what he's remembering. That he has ascended to be the most powerful person in the ancient Near East. And the one thing that he knows is that he had nothing to do with it. God had done it. And he's just praising God for this. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's pondering on all this past grace. And what the chronicler wants us to emulate is that as David ponders all these things which God has done in his life, he is filled with humility. I mean, what does he say? He says, who am I, O God, that you should have done this? I mean, I was a little runt. I was a nobody. I was knee deep in sheep poop. I mean, really, I mean, he was, the, he was at the lowest end of the totem pole. But here he is leading God's people. He's saying, who am I that you would have done this? But you have opened up the storehouses of grace and have just showered me with it. I'm going to praise you forever and ever. Now, what's really interesting, other kings back then would have hated the fact that their God would prevent them from building a temple. Because again, that was a sign of success. I mean, that was their right. I mean, if you were a king, one of the main things you wanted to do was become so successful so you could build a pyramid or a temple. But David could care less because he's just mesmerized by what God just said and it drives him to his knees, shaking his head in joyful disbelief. He's rem- do you ever sit back and just remember who you once were and where you are now and give God thanks? just remembering of how God has moved in your life. That's what David's doing here. But that's not all he does. He also ponders future grace, verse 17. (laughs) And this is what he says. He says, and all of this was small in your eyes. For you have also spoken of my house for a great while to come. David is thinking about all these amazing things which God has done in his life and says, God, you have changed me. You have changed my life. You have blessed me beyond my imagination but you didn't break a sweat doing that. That wasn't any old thing for you. It was a small thing in your eyes and still you're doing greater things. Things that are much greater than my kingship, much greater than the kingship of my son. You have just promised us a perpetual line that would ultimately lead to the Messiah. Are you kidding me? His mind is blown. And the key word in this whole Davidic covenant is that word forever. I try to emphasize that in the reading, but over and over again, we hear that word forever. David is praising God because God has promised David and the people of Israel a forever king on a forever throne in a forever kingdom. That word forever, by the way, means that our ancient enemy who stares every single person of God uh, in the face, that is death, will one day be vanquished. That's what forever means, that death has an expiration date. And David is just blown away. He goes, God, I cannot believe that you you have told me about this. Much more included me in this. I cannot believe this, that, 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 that I would be a part of this plan. Who am I that you would do such a thing? 
And I was just thinking about that. I mean, David, he had a great relationship with the Lord. He talked with the Lord. He had Nathan and everybody else. I mean, he knew about God, but still, he was so amazed by God's grace, it caused him to ask the question, why me? And I, I really think, until we at least ask that question once, why me, oh God? We haven't understood how amazing grace is. Now, David truly knew the answer to that. He tells us the answer in verse 19. All of this is ultimately because of God's sovereign grace. Listen to what he says in verse 19. He says, you have done all of this according to your own heart. You have done all of this greatness. Not me. You have done all of this. If you go back to the previous passage, which we read in context, that Davidic covenant, take note of how many times God says, I will. It's nine, verses 9 through 14. God says, I will a whole lot. You know how, how many times he says it? He says nine, nine times he says that. Nine times God says to David, I will do this. I will do that. I will do this. I will. I will. I will. Nine times. And surely by the third time, David picked up on it. God is going to do this. Not because of anything found in me. It's actually in spite of me. He's going to do this according to the purposes of his own grace. He is going to do that for me. And brothers, the reason that God has showered you with grace has nothing to do with you, but it has everything to do according to his will. And the Apostle Paul wants us to know that too. He, in his grand theological document, Ephesians, in chapter 1, where he's just giving us the scope of soteriology and God's grace, this is what the Apostle Paul tells us as Christians. He says, In love God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes not of our wills, not because you chose to, not because you wanted it, not because of your prerogatives, not because of your schemes or plans, not according to anything about us, but according to the purposes of his will. Why, Paul says, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's why he's done it, for the praise of his glorious grace. And that's ultimately what we see David do here in verse 20. After he ponders all of this grace, this past grace of God plucking him out of darkness and making him his guy and, and tear, carrying him through all these snares and traps and toils and giving him all these future promises and he recognizes it's all because of his sovereign grace, he praises God. At least he tries to. Because <laughs> look at verse 18. I think it's kind of hilarious. After he hears about all of this stuff, David says, I don't know what to say. I mean, what more can I say to you, God? I mean, it's like someone just gave him a billion-dollar check that he wasn't expecting. He just opens the door, and there it is. And he says, I, thank you. I, I, don't, I have no idea what to say here. I mean, he was completely beside himself. One uh, pastor said he, he is experiencing the frustration. I really enjoy this. He says he's experiencing the frustration of the seraphim that we see in Revelation. The seraphim who sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the Apostle John tells us they never stop singing that in chapter 4, verse 8. They never get past, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the reason is, is because even the angels know they can never get to the top of God's greatness. And so here's David. He's, he's pondering God's grace. 
as we say in the grace which has brought him thus far and the grace that will ultimately take him home. And he can't find the words to praise God like he wants to because God's just too wonderful. But still, he tries to. <laughs> he still erupts with praise. This inadequate doxology which surely blesses the Lord. What does he say in verse 20? There is none like you, O Lord. There is no God beside you. In light of, of who you are and, and what you have done and what you are doing and have promised to do, there's, there's just no one who holds a candle to you, God. And, and that's all I know to say. You're amazing. This, this covenant, this promise of redemption, this reversal of what is, this forever king that's coming, and this forever throne, and this forever kingdom, I'm just amazed by you. And he sits down. Friends, are you, are you amazed by God's grace like that? I mean, do you ponder, do you ponder past grace in your life? That saving, rescuing, holding, keeping, transforming, nurturing grace in which God has poured into your life. Do you sit down and praise him for that? Do you, are you ever driven to that question? <laughs> Who am I that I should receive such a thing from the creator God? Do you ponder future grace? We have so much more knowledge than what David had. David was looking forward to that forever king, but we have seen that that forever king has already come, brothers. And we have seen his death-cracking power on the cross. We have seen that death which shatters the curse, that death which conquers our sin and conquers our shame. We have seen his death-defying resurrection which brings life to everyone who believes in him and also assures us of our future glory. That one day when we see him face to face, we too will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye to a little Christ. We know that to be true. All of which, by the way, is according to his grace. Nothing to do with us. How can we possibly, possibly contemplate that and not break out in praise? If we can, it's because we, we have not received it or we have just failed to consider how great God is because we've been too busy with whatever else is going on. So let's take a page out of King David's book. Let us ponder and praise the Lord for his, truly, his, his grace is amazing. The second thing we see him do is remembering and hoping. We see this in verses 21 through 22. It's clear in the passage before, that context passage, that the Lord indicated in his promises to David, what he's going to do with David had much more to do than with just David. It had everything to do with the whole community of God's people. And what we see in verse 21 through 22 is kind of amazing. You know, a lot of people don't do this today because we're self-centered people. David takes his eyes off himself. <laughs> he takes his eyes off what God is doing in his own life. And surely God was doing a lot. But he takes his eyes off that and he starts marveling at what God is doing in the life of other people. And he's praising God for this. I mean, he's praising God for what's happening in that church across the street and what's happening with that denomination. I mean, he's praising the Lord, not only for what God is doing in his life, but what for God is doing in the whole of his covenant community. And so he does two things. First off, he remembers God's greater plan. Verse 21, God's greater plan of which David was just a small part. Verse 21, who is like your people? 
He doesn't say who is like me, David. He says who is like your people, the one nation on earth whom God redeemed to be his people. So David's sitting down and he's not only reflecting on on God's past grace in his own life, he's reflecting on God's grace in the life of the church of Israel. And he's praising God for what he's seeing and what he's remembering. And what does he remember? Well, he remembers that the creator of the universe, who doesn't need a blessed thing, chose to make a people for himself. To rescue them and to redeem them, he made Abraham a promise and he was faithful to keep it. And how did he keep it? He heard, the, he heard the call of his people. He saved them in their distress by stretching out his strong right arm of redemption, rescuing and purchasing Israel, breaking the back of that great nation Egypt in order to rescue that weak nation Israel to be his own people. He set them apart. He delivered them from judgment. Israel was just as deserving as Egypt was to have their firstborn cut down. But God chose to give them a substitute. He chose to redeem them. He chose to to save them through the blood of lambs. Then he chose to move heaven and earth to provide for them and to care for them. He split the Red Sea. He caused manna from heaven to fall down. He caused water to spout out from a rock. He he chose to bring them into a land that was not their own. David was recognizing that all of Israel was a trophy of God's grace. And he praised God for it. David knew that, that this eternal house in which God had just promised him was more than just for David. It was for all of God's people. That God's plan was bigger than just David. It was bigger than Barton. It's bigger than you. God is doing a marvelous thing. He is snatching people out of darkness. And he's making a people for himself that will outnumber every star in the heavens. And that caused David to praise God. Brothers, does it cause us to praise God when we notice what God is doing in the life of other people? in the life of the folks at your table, in the life of that church across the street that doesn't baptize the same way that y'all baptized? Do we praise God for what he's doing, for his spirit moving? David praises the Lord. The second thing is, is he hopes in the promises of God regarding God's people. We see this in verse 22. You made your people Israel to be your people forever. Again, there's that key word forever. Now, as Paul tells us, not all of ethnic Israel is true Israel. It's only those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, the son of David, that become the true spiritual children of Abraham. But the point is, God's promises to his covenant people are irrevocable. They're eternal. They're they're always applicable to whoever has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's 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 what... David is focusing in on that God is not a fair-weather God, that he is now and will forever be committed to all of his people. And he rejoices in that, that he's committed to his people. He's committed to Israel. He's committed to his church. And Jesus really makes this point powerfully, if you remember in John chapter 10, when he's talking about, I am the good shepherd, and he was referring to the church. And And he's saying, my sheep, those who actually hear my voice and know me, my sheep, my real sheep, Jesus says, will never perish. No one will ever snatch them from my hand. And if that wasn't enough, do you know what he says next? And my father who has given them to me, who is stronger and greater than all in the world, no one are going to snatch them from his hand either. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that all of my people, my covenant people, have the blessing of experiencing the double grip of omnipotence. 
that there's not one thing in this world that can ever snatch my people from my Father's hands or my hands. So we might be scared. We might be faulting, struggling. We might be concerned about the weakness of our faith. But God says, I have got you in my hand. Fear not, for I have named you. You are mine, is what God says. And because of this, David praises, praises the Lord. The point is, brothers, take note of what God has done and is doing, not only in your life, but also in the life of the church. That's what David is doing here. It's not only God's blessings and grace in his life that causes him to erupt with praise. He was, he was cognizant. He, he was noticing what God was doing with all of his people. Take note of what God is doing. I mean, if you, for crying out loud, if you're a member of Second Pres, do you realize we just had one of our biggest inquirers classes in recent memory? Some of whom have recently come to know the Lord? Think about what God is doing in the city of Memphis. Did you know that there's an ecumenical group of senior pastors in our city who meet on the regular to pray for the peace and welfare of Memphis? Imagine that. Baptist pastors and Presbyterian pastors meeting together and praying for the exact same thing. They're doing that. It's remarkable. Think about what God is doing in our nation. I know there's lots of bad stuff happening in our nation, but do you know there's seemingly a legit revival happening on Asbury Seminary right now? where they're going on the 13th day, I think, like 175 hours of where most of the student body and all the faculty are meeting together, praising God, worshiping God, praying and reading the scriptures, confessing sin, repenting, and reconciling. And that's actually spilling over into other college campuses and people from all over the nation are just driving to Asbury to see what's going on. Delegates from our denomination, the EPC, went to check this thing out. Is, is, is the spirit really on the move? I mean, God is, God is on the move, brothers. And think about what God is doing in the world. And all of those nations that are labeled as the bad guys, God is growing his church. He's growing his church in China. He's growing his church in Russia. He's growing his church in the Ukraine. He's, he's making his church grow in those places that we never think about because we're so involved in our own little circles. He is building his church. And if you don't believe me, come to our World Missions Conference and listen to our missionaries and hear testimony of God doing miraculous things. Brothers, do not let a day go by where you don't remember and hope in what God is doing in the world for the sake of his people. He's on the move. And let that just be fuel for your worship and daily living as we praise God for his amazing grace and what he's doing in the life of his people. Lastly, and very quickly, we see David trusting and praying in verses 23 through 27. David has taken us to the heights of God's grace. He's trusting in the promises of God, not only for him, but for, but for all of God's people. And now he prays those promises back to God. David shows us yet again the principle that we've, learning, that we've been learning these past several weeks, that the promises of God are the foundation for our prayers. God speaks to us his word. We take his word back to him. And by faith, we say, do this. One pastor said that, uh, that uh, the promises of God are the stuff of Christian prayer because we know we have no other leg to stand on. We have no other right in which God has said and promised to do. And that's what we see demonstrated in David's life. 
David's delight was found in what God had promised. And, and he took those promises, he rested in them, he banked his life on them, he banked his family's life and the people of God's life on them, he was resting in them, and he said by faith, God, do this. And there's two things, two primary things that he prayed for. First off, he prayed that God's name would be great forever. That was the, the main desire of his heart. God, do this, fulfill this, so that your name might be praised. That's incredible. That's the motive of his prayer. Ultimately, that God would be praised. He's actually alluding back to God's promise to make David's name great. So God is saying, God, please, or David's saying, God, please make my name great for the purposes of your name being made great. I mean, he even says it. He says, God, do all of this that the people might say, the Lord Almighty, the God over Israel, is Israel's God. His desire is for God to keep his promises so that people would praise the Lord. And that's what the Apostle Peter says, really the purpose of our salvation in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, God made us for his own possession, saved us for his own possession, that we might what? Y'all remember? Magnify the excellencies of his name who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what does that mean? It means that every time that we see God graciously moving in our lives, saving those people, those friends and relatives we never thought they could possibly be saved, whenever we see God moving in our church or that church or that country, all of that is being done for his glorious praise. And that is the desire of David's heart. And that is the desire of anybody who's been amazed by grace that, that God would be praised, that other people would see how amazing his grace is. The second thing he prays for is for the house to be built which God had promised. God, you, you told me you're going to give me a forever house, do it. He's ultimately praying for that promised Christ, that promised Messiah, his descendant that would, that would ascend that forever throne and that forever kingdom. That's what he's praying for. But something that's really interesting that I really want us to end on is David says, God, you have promised that. You have promised me a forever king on a forever throne in a forever kingdom. You have promised that. That's why I'm praying it. But it's only because you have promised it that I've found the courage to pray it. You know what David's saying? David is saying, David is saying that it's only because you have said these things it's not because of my imagination. It's not because I'm audacious. It's only because you have promised these things that I've found the courage and the boldness to say and pray these things. So what David is showing us is it's the surety of God's promise that allows us to be bold in the prayer room. And friends, as Christians, how much more bold should we be? I mean, just think about that. Again, on, on this end of the spectrum, on, on this side of the cross, we know that every promise that God has made is yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. How bold are you? How bold am I in prayer? I'm not very bold. I want to be more bold. How bold are you? Don't hesitate for a second to pray for every spiritual blessing in your life. Why? Because God has promised to give you every spiritual blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for that. Pray to be more like Christ. Why? Because God has promised to make you more like Christ. Pray that whenever you open your mouth and share God's word with your family or coworker or neighbor, that it would not return void. Why? Because God has promised it would not return void. Pray with 
boldness. Go, go find those promises that God makes his people. And by faith, take them back to him and say, God, do this. You are not going to annoy God, I assure you. And I know that because if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are an adopted son. You are a co-heir of the Lord Jesus, given a special status because of the special blood of the Lord Christ. And you have been invited into his throne room to pray for grace and mercy in your time of need. So brothers, with boldness, pray God's promises. Pray according to his will. Pray in alignment with his kingdom for the glory of his name. Because God has promised to do it. And we know that he's done it. Because the one for whom David longed for has come. 400 years after this little passage was written in 1 Chronicles, Matthew picks up in chapter 1 and says, The son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God has come. And he has inaugurated his kingdom, brothers. He has conquered his and our enemies. He has ascended the throne. He has promised one day to return very soon. So pray with boldness. Be amazed by the grace of God. Trust in his promises. Pray to him and praise him because truly he alone is worthy of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for you. Oh, we're so grateful for the gospel. We're so grateful. We're just amazed when we sit and think about it that you would take little old us and bring us into your eternal royal family where we can be co-heirs with Christ, heirs of you and rest in your eternal glory forever and ever. And Father, we pray that we would always be amazed by that. We pray that you would cause us by the power of your spirit to believe in it more deeply, that truly we'd be a people who would pray with boldness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.